Our first reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verse 1 to 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lord, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door after, after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But this reply, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and he will play the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then the press hand against the man Lot and, Lot and came near the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both small and great, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the, of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the law is about to destroy the city. But it seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be 
consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the man seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out of out and left him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, Flee for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills, or else you will be consumed. And Lord said to them, Oh, no, my Lord, your servant, your servant has found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot flee to the hills for fear the disaster will overtake me and I die. Look, that city is near enough to flee to, and it is little, and it's a little one. Let me not escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to them, Very well, I grant you this favor too, and will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the city was called Zohar. The sun had risen on the eighth when Lot came to Zohar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went early in the, in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the plain and saw the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the, city of, the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. Our second reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 5 to 15. Second part of the second reading, sorry, is taken from Exodus, chapter 22, verse 21. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the, the Gentiles and enter no town of Samaritans. But go gather to the Lord's sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. 
for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is wealthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is wealthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not wealthy, let the peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave the house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of the judgment than for that town. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Thank you, Solomon, and sorry for sneaking in three readings this morning. I thought if I bunched them together, you might not notice that much. I'm just gonna try something out just for a second, so bear with me. Amuse yourselves for a second. Once upon a time, oh, that all made you look up. I can see why people might want to preach from a position like this. I can see you all. You all kind of have to look up a bit more to look at me. And then I can see people up here as well. I can see Philip looking at me rather intensely right now. It also makes you feel quite authoritative being up here. I don't know if you've ever taken the opportunity to walk up here. Um, I was talking to Yudoka before the start of the service about how things happen in this church. Um, and it might look like we take ourselves rather seriously, but we don't. So feel free to come up here and have a look around. There's not that much up here, uh, but feel free to come and see the church from this perspective at the end of the service. Don't all do it now, it'd be a bit weird. But to stand here and to present to you in this way is rather effective. Now, I don't know at what point ministers of this church stopped preaching from here, but it does command that authority. To be able to tell a story from this perspective is to be able to project it, is to be able to announce how important it is. Don't worry, I am going to lower myself now and I'm going to come back down to where you guys are. I don't much fancy giving you neck ache during the duration of my sermon. I'd like you to picture your favourite story. This could be a book that you've loved since childhood, a recent novel that has captured your imagination, or perhaps a film or television series that you watch time and time again. Picturing that? What is it about that story that excites you, challenges you, provokes a reaction from you? Why do you love this story? Is it because it's well written? Perhaps the characters? Maybe the plot twists and turns so that you never know quite where you might end up with it? If you've been watching The Bodyguard on the BBC over the last few weeks, that I'm addicted to, and the plot twists and turns so that you, can't, you just can't figure out where it's going and you just can't wait to find out what's happening. Hopefully, during that, you've managed to picture something in your mind, whether it's a book or a TV series or a film. Because stories are beautiful. They're wonderful expressions of our humanity, our desire to connect with the other 
through the sharing of a narrative expressed in a variety of mediums. Perhaps just now you've been reminded a little of that beauty by taking part in that little exercise. However, our experience of storytelling can be quite a fickle beast. It is often a love-hate relationship between the author or deliverer of that story and the one who is reading or receiving it. And on many occasions, our interaction with characters from narratives can develop into emotional connections. Bonds that seem disproportionately large, considering those whom we find our newfound affection or disaffection for are fictitious, or at best, historical. There have been many occasions in which I have become emotionally involved with characters from books and long-lasting story arc TV dramas, and many a tear has been shed and a laugh surprisingly blurted out over the years. Such connections are usually harmless and are one of the many delights of the human condition. Sometimes these connections remain harmless, but they can have an altering effect on neither the content itself or the individual who is engaging with it. A good friend of mine, and this is true, refuses point blank to watch the end of the Titanic because that allows them to imagine that, spoiler alert, the ship did not sink and that Jack and Rose lived happily ever after. And for myself, I have been tempted on more than one occasion to stop reading a book at the point at which I know it digresses from my own hopes for the characters that live within its pages. I'm thinking particularly here of The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman, where the two protagonists are lying side by side before everything changes for them. If I just stop reading at that point, I can almost allow, almost allow, myself to believe that their story continues in the way that would make me happy. Another classic example of our mixed relationship with storytelling is when narratives are retold for different audiences. I was utterly aghast when I watched Rusalka at Glyndebourne Opera a few years ago. I had been led to believe that, in essence, it was The Little Mermaid. Well, let me tell you, there was no singing crab, no lovable guppy fish, and no sassy teenage mermaid with fabulous hair, seemingly maintained with just seawater and a fork. Of course, Rusaka was based on the Hans Christian Andersen story, and apologies for butchering the Danish here, then Lil Havfru, and not the rather Disney-fied version of The Little Mermaid that I had grown up with. When we are confronted with stories with which we are familiar with, even love, but then that have been retold, transformed, or perhaps even told incorrectly when we first encountered them, it can throw us through a loop somewhat. Which is exactly where many of us find ourselves with scripture. Whether we are taught Bible stories in Sunday school or encounter them for the first time as adults, the way in which they are told is often simplistic, romanticized, or completely contradictory to another narrative we have been told previously. Actually, more likely, it's probably a combination of all three of those things. I mean, Noah's Ark, for example, becomes this weirdly bizarre, fluffy episode of genocide. The animals marched in two by two, but not you, you, or you. 
Noah's family were safe on the boat, but everyone else had to try and float. I'm quite proud of that little rhyme. I wrote that. What I particularly love about the uh, about illustrated, particularly children's illustrated versions of Noah's Ark um, and the flood narrative, is that you'll be surprised how often that the two lions are depicted as male. I mean, affirming or not, you'd have a job ensuring the continuation of the species with two male lions. Look out for it. It happens alarmingly a lot. But this story is problematic, isn't it? And our acceptance of a God who destroys creation on a whim is equally problematic. It is not enough to say that God is love and that's why some were saved and the world could start again because that is contradictory to our relationship with the rest of Scripture. It is contradictory to our relationship with Christ. This is perhaps not the first time that some of you have questioned some of these famous biblical narratives that are softened for children or even for mature audiences who aren't ready to journey through the deconstruction of palatable faith and hopefully come out the other side. And it seems highly relevant for a series that focuses on tough passages in scripture that are never taught on, our very own anti-lectionary, that we allow ourselves to pick apart traditional understandings of stories that we may have known for our entire lives. And gosh, the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah is just such an episode that could do with a little deconstructing. Where do you even begin? And thank you, Solomon, for reading that entire passage. It's long, and it's hard, to, it's hard going to read. The content is harsh. So where do we begin with this? Perhaps the problematic conversation between God and Abraham prior to the destruction of the cities, and that was before our reading today, but in that they haggle together at the total number of people who need to be God-fearing to ensure that the cities are not destroyed. Literally, would you, would you destroy it with, can you save it with, nope, still gonna, can you, if there are this many, nope, sorry, it's still gonna destroy it. Could it be that when the visitors are threatened with sexual violence, Lot offers up his virginal daughters instead. Perhaps it strikes you as odd that every man seemingly in Sodom and Gomorrah is either gay or bisexual, because the passage says that every man turns up, and a traditional understanding of this passage suggests that the sin of Sodom is homosexuality. Maybe you find it particularly disturbing that Lot and his family make it to safety only for his wife to be turned into a pillar of salt when she foolishly turns around to look at the smouldering city. Ha ha, caught you, too late. You're not safe. Or might it be that God willingly commits yet another atrocity in the name of love? It's fine, it's not global genocide, it's just two cities, so God is definitely not reneging on the rainbow promise that was made to Noah. Nope, definitely not. Firstly, I'd like to dispel the, the harmful myth that this narrative is about homosexuality or sexual identities that are not considered to be the societal normative. To be clearer, Sodom and Gomorrah, the narrative that was read to us today, is categorically not about consenting gay sex. It is alarming that even today, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer peoples are in much the same way as they have in, Sodom and in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative, attributed blame for a variety of ills, ranging from the breakdown of the traditional family unit, 
And good riddance, in my opinion. There's nothing healthy about a unit that is devoted only to the needs of its patriarchal leader. To even modern-day catastrophes, which any reasonable amount of common sense would instead be attributed to the heating up of the planet and humanity's continual misuse of natural resource. Think I'm joking. In 2014, both Hurricane Harvey in the US and the extreme flooding in the UK were blamed by a small minority on the quote-unquote gays. The UKIP counselor, David Sylvester, wrote to the Henley Standard blaming gay marriage for the suffering of those afflicted by the extreme weather. In that letter, he said, I wrote to David Cameron in April 2012 to warn him that disasters would accompany the passage of his same-sex marriage bill, but he went ahead. It is his fault that large swathes of the nation have been afflicted by storms and floods. It is grossly out of character for me to say something in support of the legacy of the former PM, but blaming David Cameron for problematic weather does seem unreasonable to me. Perhaps I should apologize for the torrential rain this morning. <laughs> Biblical narratives that retain the messy handprints of those that have wrestled to offer meaning to them can often be found as the root cause of the problems that marginalized groups have experienced for generations. And it is that misappropriation of scripture that continues to lurk insidiously in the background of many ills that people still face. Across the Commonwealth, largely those countries that were formerly occupied during the days of the established British Empire, homosexual activity remains a criminal offence in 35 of the 53 sovereign states. It is commonly understood that this is the direct result of British interference in the development of the individual states, and that anti-gay legislation exists as a legacy of the Sodomy Acts introduced by the colonisers in the 19th century. The penalties for private and consensual sexual activity between members of the same sex remains eye-wateringly harsh in a high percentage of Commonwealth states, and their uniformity in punishment can be attributed to Section 377 in the Penal Codes of the former British Empire. In Jamaica and Kenya, it is punished by 10 and 14 years imprisonment, respectively, whilst it's 20 years plus flogging in Malaysia. Bangladesh, Guyana, Pakistan, Sierra Leone, Tanzania, and Uganda have a maximum sentence of life imprisonment. And in the 12 northern states of Nigeria, the maximum penalty for homosexual activity is death. As a British gay man, I am repulsed by my inherited complicity in these very current laws. This is not an issue of theology. This is an issue of life and death. And let us be very clear. Victorian sensibilities concerning morality find their foundations in a particular interpretation of scripture. It is of course not a coincidence that these laws were and remain colloquially the sodomy acts. And that many of these laws do not even mention gay women has nothing to do with a slight lapse in moral fervor or even a step towards progression, but instead a misogyny rooted deeply in the psyche of empire and their progeny today. However, the recent decision by the Indian Supreme Court to decriminalize homosexuality is cause for celebration. India, after all, has a rich history of gender nonconformity, homosexuality, and homoeroticism, 
according to the historian, politician, and social commentator Shashi Tharoor. And it was the British Empire that sought to bring native morality and sexual practice under the control of Victorian morality. Thoreau suggested some years prior to the Supreme Court's decision that it was time for the Indian government to get out of the bedroom of its citizens where the British were unembarrassed to intrude. A particular understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah and the mistreatment of LGBTQ plus people in, is not unique as the only example of marginalization in the name of Christ and his word. As Dawn explored last week when uncovering Christianity's complicity in slavery. Tackling these issues face on is essential if we are to take our call as emissaries of the kingdom of God and not foot soldiers of the empire of the church at all seriously. Looking again at the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah with this perspective, we can begin to appreciate, if we hadn't already, just how necessary reclaiming scripture is. And so what on earth are we supposed to do with a text that has been used to date to glob people into submission? It seems more than likely that the author was actually more concerned about the violation of the Israelite code of hospitality and that this rather extreme example was put forward to forewarn anyone who might not welcome the stranger into their home and protect them as if they were indeed one of their own. In our second reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, the passage from Exodus, it is categorically stated that harming, oppressing, or wronging any foreigner in the land is completely out of the question because the people of Israel were themselves once foreigners in the land of Egypt. It's very much a, come on guys, we know how this feels, let's not do this to other people, right? And Jesus affirms this in his command to the Twelve in the passage that Solomon read to us from Matthew. By likening an unwelcome reception to the behavior of the inhabitants, inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, he is clearly drawing a parallel that indicates the real sin of Sodom. And if this isn't enough for the naysayers, in Ezekiel 16, the author explicitly states the sin of your sibling Sodom. They and their children were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So here are a few relevant snippets of information for you relating to the cause of those who we might identify as poor and needy. Our friends at the Jubilee Debt Campaign estimated by the end of last year, 82 countries would be experiencing some form of debt crisis and that as of the same year, the total debt owned by governments, companies, and individuals to individuals, companies or governments in other countries was $74 trillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is. A figure that is equivalent to $10,000 per person or 100% of global income. That's the amount of debt in 82 countries. In the UK, it is estimated that 3.1 million children are currently living in poverty, an increase of around a million since the introduction of the austerity program in 2010. This is in a country which, according to GDP, is ranked as being in the top five of global economies. And as an aside, we're currently spending 5.2 billion pounds on a military nuclear deterrent that isn't up to operational standards. But of course, I'm not suggesting anything by mentioning that here. Towards the end of 2017, the UK had accepted somewhere in the region of 8,000 refugees whose lives had been impacted by the ongoing war in Syria. 
However, some two years prior, the government committed to taking in 20,000 Syrian refugees by 2020. In Germany, by comparison, more than one million asylum seekers from Syria, Iraq, Somalia, and Eritrea have been welcomed since 2015. In the years between the introduction of the Conservative government's same-sex marriage bill in 2013 and the issuing of their statement on human sexuality in 2016, the Baptist Union of Great Britain spent a disproportionately large amount of time discussing, debating, and deliberating over the issue of same-sex marriage and the particular impact on ordained Baptist ministers wishing to officiate such services. When searching for a similar zeal on issues of debt, child poverty, or asylum seekers, my search almost comes up empty. They did not help the poor and needy. Hidden perhaps not far below the surface of the sin of Sodom is a warning against the abuse of power. In this instance, that is the threat of rape, the desire to subjugate and dominate, and the pervasive nature of xenophobia, all expressed through the rejection of the hospitality code. Problems that are far from being unique to the ancient Israelites. As I have been musing on this sermon across the past week, the headlines around Brexit have managed to trump themselves on their sensationalism. However, after listening to the Prime Minister's statement on Friday afternoon, it is not hard to see why many in the UK do not feel like they are being invited in as the welcomed stranger. And closer to home, to us here at Bloomsbury, is the stranger welcome among us? Those who do not look, sound, think, or believe as we do. Recently, I've been challenged to look around at the faces of those who lead, those who speak, those who have a voice in our community, and ask the question, are we really a safe space for everyone? In our gospel reading today, Jesus is laying the hard facts before the 12 regarding the sort of lifestyle that they have accepted by following him. He boldly encourages them to go about healing the sick, to drive out demons and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. But in the same instance, he tells them they are not to seek financial or material gain from their work and that there will be times when that message is rejected. And when that happens, they must leave that home or town and shake the dust off of their feet. Whilst the life of an itinerant preacher in first century Palestine is not exactly open to us as a career choice these days, we can at least be reminded of Christ's call to a simple life, focusing on the needs of others. In a community like Bloomsbury, where we often find ourselves at the forefront of progressive theology, it is good to be reminded that, we all, should seek, that all we should seek to do is for the progression of the kingdom through the declaration and realization of that kingdom. We ought to challenge ourselves to remember why this building was built in this very spot, what its purpose was, and the mission field that we have in front of us today. It can also be tempting, and perhaps some of you might relate to me here, to not leave a town or home or office or phone call or online debate and shake the dust off your feet when the message of good news is rejected. We can often take it upon ourselves as our solemn moral duty to really hammer home the truth of our experience and understanding. But when we do this, do we ne neglect the call to which Christ issued first to the Twelve? Proclaim this message, the kingdom has come near. 
I passionately reject the idea of a God who smites those who do not love them or behaviour according to a set of hard and fast rules because that is not the drawing near of the kingdom of God that Christ proclaimed. But I passionately embrace the challenge that Genesis 19 presents us with. The sin of Sodom is indeed a warning to all of us, but it has absolutely nothing to do with our sexual orientation, but instead our orientation towards the gospel that is indeed good news to the poor and needy. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we reflect on hospitality and encountering the stranger, we remember times when you were encountered as a stranger, when you stepped across the divide between Jews and Samaritans, peoples that did not associate with each other, and asked a Samaritan woman for a drink. When the conversation that opened up between two strangers resulted in her becoming an evangelist. When you told her everything she ever did. When her encountering of you, a stranger, brought no shame, no rebuke, but rather life and liberty. When she told her people and many believed when her people came and asked you, the stranger, to stay. And you did. You stayed. And many believed. A welcome in a foreign town by people that should not be associated with. And the kingdom comes. And we remember the two on the road to Emmaus and their encountering of you as a stranger, the only stranger in Jerusalem. When the bewildered, disorientated pair were treated to you, interpreting all the things about yourself in the scriptures, when their hearts burned within them, but still they did not recognize you, when you made to move on and they urged you to stay, when they welcomed you, the stranger, and you stayed, you stayed, and you blessed bread and broke it and gave it to them, and you made yourself known to them in the breaking of the bread, and straight away, they went to their people and said, the Lord is risen indeed, the only stranger in Jerusalem, the risen Lord, and the kingdom comes. And so we pray for ourselves, for each other, for our fellowship, for Bloomsbury. May we be open to encountering you, the very same Jesus, in surprising places, among inappropriate people, in bewilderment and disappointment,
in walking away from Jerusalem. Tell us everything we ever did. Cause our hearts to burn within us. Reveal yourself to us. Make yourself known to us. We invite you to stay with us. We urge you to stay with us, even if at times you feel to be a stranger. Let us be transformed by encountering you into more abundant life and liberty. Like our Samaritan woman and our two friends on the road to Emmaus, set us free to speak of you. Stay with us. Let your kingdom come among us. And the kingdom comes. God, who we find in the very fabric of community, we pray for the communities that make up these united kingdoms. We remember our political leaders who face challenging discussions concerning the nature of Brexit. But more so, we offer up to you those who are fearful for what these decisions may mean for them. For those in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland who once more face the prospect of further division. For those who find little comfort in grand promises as they face uncertainty of their right to remain as EU citizens. For those who are now under increased security as immigrants, refugees and as asylum seekers. We know you as a God of certainty and steadfastness, and so we pray for such certainty now. We pray for those who are rough sleepers across the country, those who have no shelter from the elements, no security for their possessions, no trust in the system. We seek a breaking through of your love into the situations of those who have been abandoned by society and forgotten by the state. We know you as a God of compassion who sees only their beloved creation, not status, not wealth or ownership. And so we pray for an outpouring of compassion on those your people who have been forgotten and left for lost by us all. We pray for those who suffer the needless affliction of hunger in a world of plenty. No one should starve. In a world of plenty, no child should be malnourished. We know you as a God who created all, created in abundance and saw that it was good. Send your spirit to convict a releasing of food so that none may starve, none may suffer. Lord, give us an active love, not the kind that hangs dead in the air like an obligation to be met, but a muscular love that seeks out and holds close and saves. We are done with the shallow love of this age, the fleeting affection that can make speeches but not simply join hands with people in need. We want your love, a love that can build communities out of the rejected and give succor to the hurt, a love that drives us to be the people you have ordained for us to be purifies us, spurs us to good deeds, and lifts us up as we lift up others. 
We take our ideas, our desires, and our actions and we give them to you. Get rid of the selfishness, the pride, the insincerity. Fold us together with your will and make us anew. We pray for a love that crosses oceans, that extends to those who are far away and foreign to us. The only kingdom that matters is yours, so let our compassion not falter with distance or fail at the human hurdles of culture, castes, and creed. As we love those closest to us, help us to remember those around the world who need that same love. We remember the victims of the shipwreck in Tanzania, the refugees from the conflicts in the Middle East and Africa, and the victims of the genocides of the Rohingya and the Yazidi people. We remember those oppressed for their gender and sexual orientation, and we pray against violence done in your name. We pray for peaceful democracy and against the tendrils of rancor and hate extending into international politics. We pray against the sin of inaction in the face of injustice. And we pray for the willfully blind, all too eager to turn their faces away from the suffering of the distant other. Let us not be found amongst them, but soften their hearts, and instead fill all of our hearts with the love that surpasses all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.